The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 5. I want to ask if you would open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew, the life of Jesus Christ, uh, looking to what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The actual very words of Jesus that were spoken, recorded by the Apostle Matthew here in this Gospel. And as we are going to find ourselves in the New Testament, uh, we understand Jesus is speaking even as he is delivering this message before the cross. Uh, He is delivering this Sermon on the Mount before Calvary. Uh, Calvary is yet to come. Uh, However, this is a book of the New Covenant Scriptures. We're going to talk a little bit about the Old Covenant. Scriptures about the Old Testament within our Bibles this morning as we look to the words of Jesus regarding the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, There's a preacher, I won't mention him by name, but he's gotten in hot water lately for a number of sayings, of quotes during his sermon. Uh, Sermons, plural, but I just want to bring one to your attention regarding the Old Testament. Uh, he, He said these words in a sermon about a year ago, I believe it was. He said, first century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Now, by the word Jewish scriptures, what he meant by that, what that is, is the Old Testament scriptures. He continued, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. Is that what we ought to do with our Old Testament? Should we cut our Bibles in half this morning, those of us who have the Old and New Testament together, and and either rip it in half and only keep the New Testament, or maybe we go out and buy one of the New Testament-only versions of the Bible that might have the Psalms and Proverbs. We kind of like the Psalms and Proverbs, so we'll, we'll throw that in with our New Testament, and that's all we need in this day and age, this side of the cross. No. I... I obviously take a very different view that the Old Testament is foundational and fundamental to our understanding of the new, as we will see even this morning. And as every Wednesday night, we've been walking through the Old Testament scriptures. But I will say, practically, most of us, even though we may deny that statement of unhitching our Christian faith from the Old Testament, practically, we have unhitched our Christian faith from the Old Testament scriptures. You don't come on Wednesday night when we're walking through the Old Testament, and only every now and then, in all honesty, do we on a Sunday morning venture into the Old Testament. Most of the messages I bring on Sunday mornings are are coming from New Testament passages of, of scripture, and you and your own private devotional study and reading likely devote most of your time to the New Testament. We, we've got a lot of questions when it comes to how we read and how we understand, how we interpret, and how we apply the Old Testament. If you haven't read through it in a little bit, there's some pretty grotesque stories of war and of wicked, wicked immorality. There's some harsh penalties that are listed under the law for disobedience, even disobedience to mama and daddy. Take them out and stone them. Uh, Witchcraft and homosexuality and sexual, any sexual immorality, great Great penalties, even death, pronounced upon those who broke laws regarding those uh, subjects, those issues of even morality. There's a lot of stories of miracles that are hard to believe 
in some sense of modern day man and the way that we want to attribute everything to science and rational explanation. There, there's great miracles where God intervenes within the, the normal routine of things to reveal His power and to intervene for His people. Uh, many great miracles in the Old Testament. There's a lot of Old Testament commands that we read and sort of scratch our head out on this side of the cross because we don't obey them as they were commanded to obey them then and there, this side of the cross. We're not bringing a lamb up here to be sacrificed this morning. We're, we're not, many of us have clothing on that's got different fabrics interwoven together and we're breaking command of not wearing any garments that have interwoven different types of cloth and fabric. There's some strange commands given in the Old Testament, and we, this side of the cross, uh, obviously don't mention them, and we don't believe that they are binding upon us today. What about the prophets? A lot of doom and gloom, a lot of words about impending judgment, about a pronouncement of their wickedness and their sin. What about the strange imagery and descriptions throughout the prophets? What about even the Ten Commandments? Something as well-known and well-loved as the Ten Commandments. You know, nine of the ten we really like. You know, thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not commit adultery, and honor your father and mother. Uh, those sort of commandments that... in picture for us a, a morality, a righteousness from God, we, we do well to, to emphasize those and we, 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 we identify with those well because they speak of moral issues that are still true in our day and age. And yet, there's that pesky fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. How many of you, the Sabbath, my understanding is the seventh day, not the first day. How many of you honored the Sabbath yesterday and did not work and rested on the Saturday, the ending day of the week, the Sabbath? I can remember as a kid, of course, running into many who view Sunday now as the New Testament Sabbath, as the Lord's Day because of the resurrection of our Savior, because of the church meeting on Sunday. And, and yet it still was an issue of confusion for me. And, and still for many is today, is it all right to go home and mow your lawn this afternoon? Or are you breaking the Sabbath by going and mowing your lawn this afternoon? Is it all right, Lord forbid, to go to the golf course this afternoon? You see me out there this afternoon hitting the ball across the road into somebody's yard? Are you going to bring an accusation against the preacher that he's breaking the Sabbath? These are, these are very good questions. They're good things to think about. And they are questions that I hope, I pray, I bring a little bit of clarification to as we look to the words of Jesus recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to bring to you three truths about Jesus that we find in this scripture. I would say the first of which is the most confusing, and so we're going to dwell on it for the majority of our time as we walk through the the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus, the fulfilling of the law and the prophets. The second, I would say, is most important because it's foundational, and by it we understand everything. And the third really is most urgent, and we'll we'll close with the most urgent, uh, the most urgent for you and for me even this morning. So first, notice first, verse 17, Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets. Jesus fulfilled. He didn't put off. He didn't destroy. He didn't discard as if it was unimportant or as if it was a bad thing. He didn't annihilate it. He he fulfilled, he says, the law and the prophets. Now that expression, law or prophets, law and prophets even more particularly, is used in a couple other places in the New Testament to represent the entirety of the Old Testament. Often, when in the Hebrew mindset you would say law and prophets, it would be like us saying the Old Testament. It would be like us saying the Bible. Sometimes they would add the Psalms to it, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That was their category to break down um, just generally the, the, the divisions of the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus is saying here that all that came before Him, all that we find even in our Old Testament Scriptures, ultimately comes to a fulfillment in Him, in His person, and in His work, what He came to accomplish, what He came to do. It's important that we understand what that word fulfill means. Fulfill means to bring to completion. It means to achieve or realize something that was desired or promised or predicted. That Jesus Christ says I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have actually come to fulfill them. Now, Jesus is answering an accusation that would be brought against him because of what he was about to deliver. We'll look into it in the weeks that lie ahead, where he was going to take the misinterpretation of the Pharisees and how they had had so externalized the law, and he was going to point it back to really what it was meant to do as a heart check to reveal all of us fall short of the righteousness that God requires. He's about to go there, and he knows when he does that the Pharisees are going to accuse him of seeking to destroy the law. They're going to argue Jesus has come just to abolish Judaism altogether. He's come to to put it off as if it were a bad thing, the the law and the prophets. And Jesus, at the very beginning, introducing this next um, portion of his Sermon on the Mount, he begins by making clear, I haven't come to do away with it as if it were a bad thing. But I have come to do away with it in the sense that I am bringing the fulfillment of it all. That I am the grand purpose and the grand reasoning for which it was even given in the very beginning. It leads to me. It points to me. It finds its completion in me and in who I am. I heard an illustration once given um, comparing this to the destruction of an acorn. So if I had an acorn up here and I I put it right here on the the pulpit and I had a hammer and I smashed it, that would be destroying the acorn. That would be annihilating the acorn. Jesus says, I haven't come to destroy the law. He wasn't smashing it up with a hammer. If I took that same acorn and I planted it in the ground and watered it and let it sit for a little bit, what's going to happen? An acorn, in a sense, will come to an end. Why? Because it will be fulfilled in the the growth of a, a large oak tree and the beauty of a tree. 
That once what was as that acorn becomes this, this grand large tree. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The acorn of the law, in a sense, gives way to the grand tree of the gospel of grace, of the, the new covenant which we are given through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus mentioned in other places, other verses about he being this grand fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. John chapter 5 and verse 39, there were some folks that were examining their Old Testament Bible as if in the scriptures alone they would find eternal life. And Jesus looked at them and he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and it is these that testify of me. And Jesus said, you look in the Bible to think that you're going to find a secret to eternal life in it. In your own righteousness, he says, no, it's these scriptures that ultimately point to me and who I am and what I will accomplish for you. In Luke chapter 24, on that road to Emmaus, these two guys are walking down a road after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, after the crucifixion, and they're, they're talking like, what in the world did we just witness in this life of the, the person of Jesus? And Jesus appears right there with them. I'd love to hear the Sunday school lesson that Jesus gave. When he opened up the Bible and it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, so again, the law and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That all the way from Genesis, all the way through Malachi, all the way through even as we consider the New Testament, it all ultimately points us to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that came before him was given ultimately to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to instruct us to a greater understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ would accomplish for his people. If we're going to read and understand our Old Testament scriptures rightly, we must understand this aspect of what Jesus did, that he came to fulfill that which came before. And so as we think about it, first let's think about it with the prophets. It's a little easier to grasp this. But the prophets, if you've read through them, they're filled with language that points us to promises of redemption, promises of restoration, promises of forgiveness, and God's people being made right and being given a new heart. They're filled with prophecies about the Messiah, the one who would accomplish this for God's people. The Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah who would be born of a virgin. The Messiah who would do this and that in his life. Even in the book of Matthew already, we've seen Matthew quote Isaiah on a couple of occasions. Prophecies that were given that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled. He is the fulfillment of the messianic longings of the prophets. He is the one who can open up the scroll of Isaiah as he did and, and open it up and read a portion that spoke about the Messiah and say, today this passage has been fulfilled in your presence because he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God incarnate. As we read the prophets, we read them rightly when we see their grand fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are in between his first and second coming. We see the kingdom inaugurated in his first coming, his giving of his life uh, upon a cross for our sins, buried and resurrected. But hear me, there's a second coming upon which he will come, ruling and reigning and judging the sinners and, and those that are in wickedness. He will come to establish justice and establish an eternal kingdom. That day is yet to come. Both the, the first and second coming are the fulfillment of the longings of the prophets. 
Jesus has fulfilled the prophets, but Jesus has also fulfilled the law of Moses. The law of Moses can be a little burdensome. It can be a little cumbersome even as you try to read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You read through all of these commands that are given. It is helpful somewhat to break the commands under the law into three categories. And traditionally within church history, these three categories, it's a predominant view that's been held that we can break the law into what's called the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. Now, just real quickly, ceremonial law would be all of the teachings and commandments and laws that that deal with the sacrificial system, that deal with the festivals of the Old Testament, that deal with the ceremonial cleansings that are commanded. All that we think of when you read through and find all of those commands about what sacrifice they're to offer after what offense, all of that would be ceremonial law. A second category would be civil law. This would be the laws, the commands that were given that really dealt with Israel as a government, Israel as a nation, Israel in their day-to-day life within that culture in that day and age. And so just as we have laws of our government, those are the laws that reflect the governing governing body of Israel, even God ruling through his king, through his people. And then the third category would be moral laws. Those would be the laws that reveal the righteous standards of God. Laws like the Ten Commandments that we so cherish that reveal to us a righteous standard that God gives to humanity. Now, of those three, the first two, almost all New Testament believers throughout the church age have agreed. Jesus has fulfilled the the first two for sure. The ceremonial aspects of the law, we realize all of that was given and set up by God so that when Jesus came, John the Baptist could look at him and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus set up, or God rather, set up through his people that sacrificial system where a a lamb would be offered as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. God set up the sacrifice by which the the scapegoat would be let out of the city after the priest, you know, symbolically transferred the sins of the people upon that animal that would then be released and let out a picture of God carrying their sins away. Uh, A whole understanding from the very beginning without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins that, that, that to really be atoned for requires a sacrifice. All of this was given, all of the ceremonial cleansings, all all that is instructed there, it finds its grand fulfillment in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the lesser that is pointing us to the greater. It was all given to teach us so that we may understand when He came on the scene, that Israel might understand when He came on the scene and He gave His life a ransom on Calvary, they might come to understand He is the Lamb of God who bore our sins upon that the civil law. Jesus fulfilled that in the sense that he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled that in the sense that he took death upon himself. He took the penalty, the wages of sin upon himself, dying upon Calvary for your sins and mine. He has fulfilled the ceremonial law. He has fulfilled the civil law. And I would argue also, thirdly, he has fulfilled the moral law. He was the sinless Son of God. He lived a life of perfect righteousness before us and before God in total obedience morally to all that the law required. Therefore, 
I would say, and this is up some debate, there, there's many that would say, well, the, the moral aspect of the law is still binding upon us today. And it's a way that we can kind of easily rationalize the, or rather easily apply the righteous standards of God revealed in the law to us today as if they're still binding. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. All of the, the nine commandments that we love, and then we don't know what to do with the tenth. Um, I, or with the fourth, the, the fourth commandment of the Sabbath. I would argue, as I've read and studied the Word of God and the Scriptures and Paul's writings in Romans, even Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, verse 17, I think Jesus fulfills all the law, even the moral obligations of the law. Jesus has become our righteousness. Jesus says here, don't think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he's speaking of all of it. He's not dividing it into two-thirds and saying, I came to fulfill just two-thirds of it, and the one-third is still up to you to do, and for you to perform, and for you to accomplish. No, Jesus fulfilled it all. Romans 10 and verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 6 and 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but are under grace. Now, now, the Ten Commandments, the nine in particular, they do reveal to us the righteousness of God. But understand this, the righteousness of God transcends the law of Moses. Right? It, it was sin when Cain murdered Abel long before it was written by Moses, Thou shalt not murder. Are you following with me on that? The, the righteousness of God does not flow from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments flow from the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is based upon the character of God. And so before the law of Moses even was, before that time frame of Moses, sin still was. Adam and Eve, Adam sinned against God. Sin existed prior to it being written under the law. We, even though the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the righteous standards of God are still present. They are still universal. They're still right and wrong. And the things that were right before the law of Moses and during the law of Moses are right and wrong after the law of Moses has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so it is right to look to the Ten Commandments and see them as a reflection of God's righteousness, as even a revelation of God's righteousness. But I think it is wrong to say they are binding upon us. Because if we say they're binding upon us, then we're missing what Jesus has really accomplished in the fulfillment of all the law. And there's a dangerous tendency, dangerous tendency to think as they are still binding upon us that we are able to perform and do them and sort of earn our righteous stand, our, our righteousness, our justification before God. It's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees developed a way of understanding the law that was external, a list of do's and don'ts, and you do this, and you're, you're all right, and you don't do these things, and you'll be all right with God, and someday they'll be able to stand before God and say, well, we didn't do this, and we did do this, and, and they think God's going to say, all right, man, you're a good person, come on in. Jesus fulfilled it all. Well, where does that leave us with the Sabbath? Where does that leave us with going to mow your lawn at 2 o'clock this afternoon? I think the Bible, even the New Testament verses that were given regarding the Sabbath make clear the Sabbath has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look to Romans chapter 14 and verse 5. 
Paul says one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. You know what he's saying there? It's not a big deal. If you hold to a Sabbath rest, that's great. But if you don't, it's great too. You would think if he were believing that the fourth commandment was binding upon us on this side of the cross, he would not have instructed in such fashion. He would have said, don't you know the fourth commandment? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But Paul saw the Sabbath as keeping it and as holy, yet fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's not convincing enough for you, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Let no one judge you in food or drink. Now I know some that prefer to eat a certain way based upon some of the dietary restrictions in the Old Covenant. And I say, good for you. I'm going to go home and enjoy a ribeye steak um, or a pork chop or, a, or whatever the food that, you know, the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament were given in that day and age for a certain purpose. But in the fulfillment in Christ, I apply them differently in this day and age. Um, I have to filter those commands as being fulfilled in Jesus and say, is this a, 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 an issue of righteousness that preceded the law, that transcends the law, that still applies to me today as a New Testament believer that is even often, if not always, quoted as a command in the New Covenant, in the New Testament? Or is this something that was bound under the law for that day and age, a specific purpose in that day and age, that ultimately found its total fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? So so wearing a jacket with, with two different types of fabric today, I am not going to say is a sin against God. I don't know if this is two different types of fabric or not, but it's two different colors that are woven together. That was that was sinful in the Old Covenant because it represented the intermixing of, of, of God and, and paganality, of the, the people of God and, and of the, the people who were not of God. And so there were commands given in that day and age that were particular and specific to that day and age that are bound within the law. They're fulfilled in Christ. Christ has become my, my righteousness. I am in Him and He is in me. So the Sabbath, then, he says, let's go back to that, Colossians two sixteen and 17, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, he says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so those things were given as the shadow that leads to the real thing. Those things were a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were meant to lead us and to guide us and direct us to point to who He is and to what He would accomplish in His life, in His death, burial, and resurrection, in His second return, in the glory that He would bring and establish. Hebrews chapter 4, I think, speaks of the fulfillment of the Sabbath and the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of there being a rest, a rest that the believer is to enter into. How does it picture our salvation in Christ? How is it fulfilled in Him? I am not up here this morning trying to earn my salvation before a holy God. I'm not up here preaching and trying to preach the best that I can in hopes that I impress God enough that someday He'll let me into heaven. I'm not working. I'm not at work. I'm resting because grace upon grace has been given to me. The believer in Christ has a Sabbath. 
we, we do obey the Sabbath, just as we obey all the commandments as they are fulfilled in Christ. We, we come to rest by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you were to ask me, do I believe in keeping the Sabbath, if I'm feeling like a smart aleck, I'm going to answer you, yes, I do, but I keep it in Christ. He is my Sabbath rest. And you might see me mowing my lawn at 2 o'clock or playing golf. Because I don't personally have a conviction that the Sabbath is binding upon us. I believe Jesus fulfilled it. I believe the Sabbath points me to Him. And it points me to rest. Not not a physical rest, even as much so as a, a spiritual, eternal rest in what He has done and accomplished for me at Calvary. Now, if you hold to a Sabbath, I would argue you should do it on Saturday because that truly is the Sabbath, but, but that is up to the conviction God lays upon your heart and your soul, and I'm not going to scorn you and say you're immature for that, or you're, that has been a view that many within the church have held, and many even today still hold. But for me personally, in my study of the Word of God, Christ has fulfilled it all. And now I must ask, as I read my Old Covenant Scriptures, my Old Testament, as I read the law, And I say, this points me to Jesus. And now I look and I say, well, the law of Christ in me, how does that that look? It's summed up well so many times. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's repeated in the New Testament. That that does imply all the righteous standards that we would hold to that are revealed in the other nine commandments of the Ten Commandments that are uh, summarized in those two um, commands given there. There's much that applies to us today as far as morality, as far as righteousness, but a number of the ceremonial and civil laws, of course, have been fulfilled completely and totally in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and are not bounding uh, binding upon us today. We, you didn't bring a lamb in here. You didn't bring your sacrifice in here uh, this morning to come to worship. Uh, we look back to Christ, who is our sacrifice, who is the grand fulfillment of all that came before. One more point on this, and then we'll go move on and quickly summarize the next two. You know, we, I read an article about a school, I think, school, county, whatever it is in Texas, that got the Ten Commandments posted in all the classrooms. And, you know, part of me wants to rejoice in that, and part of us would say, well, that's a good thing, right? And it is to some degree a good thing, and yet it's a lacking thing. Like, it's lacking. It's not what is best overall. It really it really ties into this mentality that we think that if we can just do the Ten Commandments, then we'll, we'll have the society that, that, that ought to be. And so many even, there's been so many little microcosms throughout history that have tried to develop that. Think of Geneva and Reformation movement where it's like you try to force the Ten Commandments upon a culture and think that that's going to create heaven on earth, a utopian sort of environment. And it never works. It never works because it's not within us to do what the Ten Commandments require of us. I think far better than having the Ten Commandments posted in every classroom, if I could have it my way, we'd have John 3.16 posted in every classroom. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because it's in that verse that we find the actual ability to be what God requires of us, to have the righteousness even that the Ten Commandments speak of. Never in the Ten Commandments alone will a culture or a civilization or a classroom or a church for that matter be what God wants it to be. It's only when we come to repentance and faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're actually given of His grace what we ought to be and then can live out of that. Don't, Don't get so bent on the Ten Commandments. And act as if we're under the Old Covenant and forget Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has come before. 
Notice, secondly, quickly, verses 18 and 19. Jesus believed God's word is true. It says in verse 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth passes away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, a jot would be the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It'd be similar to an apostrophe even in the English language. A tittle would be one of the smallest strokes of a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So if you would think in English of a P, a capital P, and you, you think one little stroke would turn that into an R, that would be a tittle, a jot and a tittle. You may have heard it put this way before. Jesus said, not one dot of an I nor a cross of a T will, will pass away, but all will be fulfilled. Jesus held a very high view of the Word of God, did He not? He believed, as He's speaking even here of the Old Covenant Scriptures, that the Word of God is the Word of God, that it is enduring and that it is authoritative, that not one jot or tittle will pass away, but all will be fulfilled. And then He gives a stern warning. And he says, therefore, verse 19, whoever breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. I'm surprised he's actually dealing with people in the kingdom of heaven here. Which really applies to you and me. That if we belittle the word of God, if we break a portion of the word of God and we, we, we pretend it's not a big deal and we even teach others it's not a big deal, then, then he will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But the one who holds the word of God in high regard and does not merely teach it, but does it also, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus held a very high view of God's Word. We are called also to hold a high view of God's Word. I bring a, a message this morning based upon God's Word. I bring a message every time I speak from this pulpit, Lord willing, and you ought to hold me to it, based upon, flowing from, derived from, the very Word of God. Because this is God's Word to us. It's what is given to teach us and to instruct us. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus makes clear that the law and prophets were God's Word, and He wasn't just doing away with it. He wasn't ignoring it or destroying it or abolishing it. He was fulfilling it. Notice thirdly, what I would say is most urgent for us even now, in closing. Jesus revealed a righteousness we all need that we don't have, not in and of ourselves. Jesus looked to a group of people who gathered around him who would have looked to the scribes and Pharisees as the most well put together, most well versed in religion, the, the crowd that if anybody was going to make it, you would say these people would make it. The scribes and the Pharisees were going to get to heaven if anybody was. Jesus looks to this crowd with that sort of mentality that they had, thinking of the scribes and Pharisees, and he tells them, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Every person in hearing distance of Jesus' voice went, say, what? What do you mean? The Pharisees got it all put together. They, they are the ones that keep the law to the strictest degree. They're the ones who know what to do and what not to do and who tell everybody else what to do and not to do. If anybody's going to get there, it's going to be them. Or what about the scribes? They know the Word of God. 
They're the ones even the Pharisees turn to to interpret a passage here or there or say, where is this found or where is that found? If anybody's going to get there, it's got to be them. And Jesus says, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall, know by, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is ultimately in the Sermon on the Mount revealing to all, us included, you, you don't have what it takes in and of yourself. And, and it's not about turning a new leaf over in your life. It's not about starting to do this and stopping doing that in order to earn God's favor as if someday you're going to present all your good before God and He's going to have all your bad on the other side of the scale. And if your good outweighs the bad, then He's going to say, come on in. So many people wrongly, ignorantly think about God and His judgment in that light. Really, it's God and His forgiveness in that light, His justification in that light, that, that you think in and of yourselves you will be able to justify yourself before a holy God. Jesus says, uh-uh, not happening. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He's ultimately saying the scribes and the Pharisees aren't even getting in on their own skin, on their own works, on their own righteousness. How then can we be made right before a holy God? We'll close with this passage. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, for he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become what? The righteousness of God. Not in us, in him. For God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, in Jesus. I say this is most urgent because it is. Your eternal salvation hangs in the balance. If you're here trying to earn your way to heaven, you'll never make it. Jesus says your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I promise you, externally, the scribes and the Pharisees had a much more impressive righteousness than you will ever have. But Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. Nobody's righteousnesses will ever justify them before God. And the whole point that Jesus is leading up to in the whole gospel is on a trajectory there is that someday soon from this moment Jesus is going to climb a hill called Calvary and he's going to be nailed to a cross of wood his pulpit even shaped as a cross and there he's going to say it is finished there he's going to become the atoning sacrifice that you and I don't deserve that you and I need if we're ever going to be made right with God and he gives his life a ransom on Calvary for your sins. He's buried and raised again. And he therefore in his resurrection power, he has power to forgive. He has power to raise the dead. He has power to give eternal life. It's a beautiful transaction. He takes our sin and he gives to us his righteousness. We get clothed in the, the righteousness of Jesus. 
But as we come to a close and an invitation, I beg you, if you have never come to the Lord in the name of Christ, never repented, confessed your sinfulness before God, and just cried out as a broken, humble sinner, God, I need salvation, and I know Jesus paid it all. I beg you, save me because of what He did at Calvary for me. If you've never turned to Him and said that prayer, I beg you, as we have this invitation, do so. Don't try it. Try to get there in the righteousness of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That won't get you there. But Jesus, so gracious, He is lovingly merciful, offers you even now His righteousness. And that and that alone is what will get us there. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we pray, Lord, that You would be at work in all of our hearts, for every believer, that You would continue to sanctify our lives and our hearts, that we would continue to grow in Your Word and the knowledge of Your Word, that we would continue to just be amazed at the grace in which we stand, and that we would leave here even renewed in it, refreshed in it, not thinking that we're here because of our own works of righteousness, knowing it's only by the grace of Christ and the redemption of Calvary that we're saved. Or if there be one here who's never turned to Him, one here who's trying to do it on their own, to do it by their own works, may they see the futility of that, and may they confess their sinfulness and come this evening.